Hey, welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark. I'm here with Trevor. What do you feel like today, Trevor? Uh, I feel like a bird on the wind, just floating. How are you feeling? I feel like a talk radio guy. A talk I, radio guy or a talk radio host? Host or guy, you know. I messed around <laughs> and, and made uh, and made some kind of uh, soundboard type thing. Fuck around. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, Bulldog brought, uh, Bob Briscoe. <laughs> we need this. You know, I got the Sonic rings. Dude. <laughs> Feel perfectly okay. free to use that during my shitty book report. <laughs> oh, I'm going to abuse it. I'm going to abuse it this episode. Sounds good. Uh, so I, fu- I fucked up and I played the one that I wanted to save, but... um. I'll play it again <laughs> to start. So today I was thinking we'd do the, you know, the return of a classic game, a return of plot or not, and then dramatic sound. No. <laughs> I know which no, the re- I know which one you want to play. The return of plot or not. Oh my god, the return of plot or not. Well, yeah. So yeah, we played this a few times. I mean, to give a recap. What I've done is I've researched the plots of some stories here. I've made up a few myself, and you've got to determine if they're real or not. So today I'm going with something different. I mean, we do a different genre every time. Not exactly novels today, but I've, today I've got the plots of some ancient fairy tales. Whoa. Yeah, you know, it's cool to go back and read what some of these were about. And the backstory is usually, it's almost always darker stranger oh, yeah, yeah what's definitely. been passed on but uh, i got some got some ones today so uh are you ready for number one yeah i'm excited to hear the ones that you made up that you think would be <laughs> appropriate uh ancient fairy t- how ancient are we talking about here like before grim before uh, everything let's go hundreds hundreds okay all right and i'll just say hun- hundred hundreds <laughs> okay first one A mother dies while giving birth, and her husband remarries. The new wife is determined to do away with her stepson. She kills him, guillotine-style, with the lid of a wooden chest, and cooks him up in a stew to serve to the family. The boy comes back to life as a beautiful bird out for revenge, and exchanges a song for a giant stone used to crush the stepmother. Then he returns to his human form and sits down for dinner with his family. Oh my god, these are gonna be like, I think I'm gonna have to determine my guesses based on like how fucked up it is. Like, I think that that's real because it's fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> that, so that one, that is real. That And uh, you actually kind of started off, you said uh, Brothers Grimm, this was a Brothers Grimm story. It's called The Juniper Tree. Uh, okay. And in case you knew that, I didn't want to give away the fact that the, the boy was buried under a juniper tree, like his whatever his remains were that weren't cooked, like probably his bones and stuff were under a juniper tree. And that's like, that's what made it happen. Cool. So yeah, Brothers Grimm, early 1800s, German origin. All right. Germans are like, they, I feel, I mean, maybe it is because of the Brothers Grimm, but I feel like they have like the cornerstone on fairy tales. Like everything always goes back to Germany with fairy tales. Yeah. So you got that one right. So... <laughs> I don't have one for booing, so point one to me. The last time I do that. Um, all right, number two. The kingdom of Daventry is in serious peril after the theft of their the uh, city's magical treasure. So the dying King Edward sends his bravest knight, Sir Graham, to Cumberland on a quest to rid of a treacherous witch, face unknown danger, and retrieve the three lost treasures. Because he had no heir. If Graham should succeed, he would become the next king. Sir Graham embarks upon this quest, climbing a magic beanstalk to the land of the clouds where he recovers a chest of gold, faces leprechauns to retrieve the magical shield, and finally defeats a dragon to get back the magic mirror. After retrieving all the items, Graham returns to the throne room in time to present them to the king just before he dies. As the king passes away, he makes Sir Graham king as promised. I think that you made that up. I did. 
but it's from something. <laughs> you did. I mean, the only. <laughs> Some green saves. It's from King's Quest. King's Quest. Quest for the Crown. You ever heard of that? It's a, I have. It's a yeah, yeah. Game from my childhood. King's Quest. It's uh, Sierra. That company Sierra that did a bunch of cool shit after the fact that they made all their money making uh, these King's Quest or these adventure games for the PC in the 80s. Damn. The, the reason you, I uh, thought you made it up and I thought you made it up out of nowhere. The reason I thought you made it up is one, the names, like the names were really specific. And also Cumberland. I was like, Mark just probably saw like a Cumberland Farms gas station <laughs> like, trying to like pull some shit. <laughs> no, those are real from the uh, from the game. Um those games rock, dude. Um, it's all like based on a point system and stuff, and it's like uh, you have to type in what you want the, the person to do. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, do. and it's like yeah, those and, are sick. But they were really good at like kind of predicting what you type in. Yeah, like look under rock or whatever. It'd be yeah. like there's not a rock nearby or whatever. I don't yeah. know. It was cool. Those are fun. Um, all right, two for two. Next one. The emperor of China reads about nightingales and decides to get one for himself. The bird's song is so lovely that it warms his heart. One day, a package shows up with a mechanical wind-up bird covered in jewels. The bird's song is very close to the real thing and becomes a replacement for the nightingale. One day, the emperor falls ill, and he can't conjure the bird's song because he is unable to wind it up. When he is close to death, the silence is broken by the return of the real bird's song, who brings the ruler, sings the ruler back to health. Uh, real. Yes. That's uh, The Nightingale by Hans Christian Andersen. Interesting. I didn't really know. I guess I don't know like enough about fairy tales, but I wouldn't think of like Hans Christian Andersen to write something about like the Far East. Yeah. That's that was, uh, yeah, from a, a Danish perspective. I wonder if he had ever been there. There's a lot of really good like stories and literature and also like architecture and stuff that has to do with... Um, like westerners who have never been into asian countries and they would just like interpret it uh a famous yeah. a famous example is the brighton palace in the united kingdom is like king george the fourth constructed this palace that was basically his like idea of what india was like so it's like so it's like not all casino <laughs> yeah it's like it's like yeah it's their version it's like the you know, that time period's version of like a Taj Mahal casino type of thing where yeah. it's like, this is what China supposedly looks like in the books that I've read. Yeah. It's funny. <laughs> nice. All right. I made these too easy. Damn. Or I'm just not, I'm not good enough at making them sound fake. All right. Next one. A king feeds a flea on his own blood until it's big enough to slaughter and skin. And he promises his daughter to the man who can guess what animal the skin came from. Many try and fail to guess the origin of the pelt, but one day a hideous ogre shows up, smells the pelt, and identifies it immediately as a flea. The king holds up his end of the deal. The princess is then horrified when her, she gets to her new home made of human bones, and while the ogre is out hunting, an old woman hears the maiden wailing and sends her seven sons, who all have magical powers, to go rescue the princess. Mmm. Real. Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's The Flea, 1634 by uh, Giambattista Basile. Okay. I don't know how to pronounce that, but Italian poet. So that's huh. that's the oldest one I've got there. That's crazy. I mean, the reason that's I guessed it up. was real is because it was so <laughs> fucked. I was like, who, Damn you know, like Mark cannot conceive of growing a flea to be large enough so you can skin it. It's fucked up. <laughs> I should have... I should have made mine mine worse. <laughs> Anyways. All right. Good job. Next one. In the land of Ludor, a young man named Gwydion is being kept by the wicked wizard, Mananon. For as long as he could remember, 17-year-old Gwydion has been held captive by Mananon as his servant, cooking and cleaning for him in his mountaintop home. From this vantage point, and with the help of a telescope, the seemingly all-knowing wizard watches the countryside, the shoreline, and vast ocean to the east, and an endless desert to the west. Mananon takes a series of absences to attend to manners in the town, and Gwydion seizes his chance to escape. He breaks into the wizard's laboratory and reads his book of spells, then goes out into Ludor to collect ingredients for them. 
After solving many puzzles to obtain the spell ingredients, Gwydion turns Menon into a cat and is finally free. He also learns from an oracle that he is in fact the long-lost Prince Alexander, and so he sets out to return to his homeland. Uh, real. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same it's game again? It's King's Quest 3. There's like seven of them. Dude, King's <laughs> Quest 3. That one's awesome. It's, um... Yeah, like it is. You're you're like this kid who's like, uh, and that, like the crazy thing about those games is that like the people would just pop up out of nowhere. You'd be like, and you know it's frame, it's like frame by frame or whatever. So you can only move within the square, and then like you go outside, and it turns into like another square, another room, and it'll just like mm-hmm. the guy will pop up out of nowhere and like scares you. But yeah, that um, I think that game's from late '80s, but. So I couldn't come up. I actually did not attempt to come up with any <laughs> fairy tales. I just used the King's Quest games for the two fake ones. That was it. <laughs> Dude, you're such you a cheater. Four, you went four for five. Awesome. Anyways. Well, uh, this is episode 21, odd number, which means that, uh, Mark, you're going first. All right. This week, I've got another hint for what my book is. So let's go back to the soundboard. Oh. Any ideas? Yeah, I know this. Of course I know this. <laughs> this is the that's the theme song to the best sci-fi show of all time, Stargate Atlantis. Wait, how did you know that? How did I know that? <laughs> yes, you are you are right. So so the book I have this week, it's um it's really only sort sort of about Atlantis, but you know, Atlantis is in the title, so Okay. Uh had to use that as the as the hint. And, you know, I've noticed that when a work, any work of fiction, like tackles the topic of Atlantis, you pretty much have two options. You're either, you know, discovering Atlantis, going there. You got like mermaids and mermen and tridents and talking seahorses and shit like that, or seahorses with um, saddles, Mm. you know, (laughs) or it's about the pursuit of Atlantis and like the mysteries involved and where Atlantis is largely, you know, symbolic. Would you agree with that? It's kind of, kind of the only two ways you can approach it. Yeah. Yeah. There's really no in between. Yeah. So my book this week belongs to the latter group and it's, it's very funny. It's really witty. I read it a few years ago, revisited it. I revisited it a bit this week. I couldn't get through the whole thing, but you know, I picked up the first quarter of it, the first five, six chapters, and most of it came back to me. And uh, what I was reminded of it is that it's just curveball after curveball. It's it's super, super dense with humor, especially like in the language, um, the dialogue and everything. So anyway, my book for this week is Masters of Atlantis by Charles Portis. Mm. I really like this guy. I think I recommended the, his book, uh, The Dog of the South, to you a few years back yes i have read the dog of the south yeah you know in retrospect that wasn't the best choice for the recommendation for portis and um because i like this one a lot more I so like this would be the best a lot more this no this one I, I would say uh actually it's it i'll get into it but i i think i went into portis uh i went into his bibliography the opposite of what most people do um so i don't actually know what i should recommend (laughs) i can recommend (laughs) what i know and recommend what the general consensus is but anyways um you know he doesn't have very many books his debut norwood is really good Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's a short one i got it here i think it's like only like uh 150 pages or something norwood would Um, you know if that's about massachusetts uh, no, it's not. There's like, I'm sure there's a million towns named Norwood. <laughs> yeah, it's the guy's name Norwood, and he's just on like a uh, road trip mm. to pick up a car, pretty much. It's, it's really funny, though. Um, but, you know, he's most famous for writing the novel True Grit. Oh, okay. Which I continue, I continue to kick myself for not having read. Seen, I've seen both movies. <laughs> I love this, I love this author. And I've never read his most famous book. And everyone says it's it's fantastic. So I really should read it. Nice. Uh, 
so it was yeah it was made into a movie true grit was made into a movie with john wayne yep in the 60s he actually won best actor like the oscar and the golden globe for it uh, and then it was remade about nine years ago by the coen brothers with mm-hmm. jeff bridges um and that's like a good introduction to those who haven't read anything by him i feel because i feel like pretty much all of his books could be adapted by the Coen brothers, like masters of Atlantis would make a, a really funny movie. You know, the characters just have that kind of feel to them. Dialogue's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So I would say as a side note, before you get into the plot of masters of Atlantis, that I was really psyched when you play the Atlanta, the Stargate Atlantis theme song, because probably the trashiest books I've maybe ever read is the continuation of the Stargate Atlantis series. I actually had the novels. What? <laughs> Cause like I heard like, yeah, nerd, nerd alert. Cause like Atlantis is such a guilty pleasure for me, but also I will defend it to the death. That's what happens with my guilty pleasures. I start to love them. And yeah. so the series ends like semi abruptly and there's a series of novels out there that is like officially approved by the producers and I've read like all five of them. It's really season insane. seven. Yeah. yeah. It's not text. Okay. Nice. So. So, uh, yeah, Charles Portis, Chucky Portis, he was born in 1933 in Arkansas um, and he's still alive. So he's uh, uh, 85 right now. And people have have hope that he has you know another book in him mm-hmm. but he hasn't released like anything since the 80s so it might be one of those things where posthumous like releases or something Probably, I, I don't yeah. know so um yeah he fought in the korean war he he got his journalism degree afterwards worked in newspapers until the mid 60s and he started writing full-time uh norwood was his debut that was released in 1966 True Grit was actually serialized in the Saturday Evening Post, 1968. But, uh, so to focus on Masters of Atlantis, this is from 1985. So it's about, I haven't said anything about the book yet. (laughs) (laughs) It's about a secret society, you know, think uh, Freemasons Mm -hmm. or the Stonecutters episode of The Simpsons. Probably a lot closer to that one. <laughs> um, and uh, in this book, it's a it's focused on something called nominism, like spelled like gnome, like G-N. No, probably, it's probably pronounced nomanism. Um, and really, I just want to jump in and just read the first few pages of the book. Because it sets up the story just immediately and it will give you like a really good idea of the humor and the style and the pace and everything. So while I search for a page, I'll just play something. (laughs) For no reason. (laughs) Okay, chapter one. Young Lamar Jimerson went to France in 1917 with the American Expeditionary Forces serving first with the balloon section, stumbling about in open fields, holding one end of a long rope, and then later as a telephone switchboard operator at AEF headquarters in Chamont. It was there on the banks of the Marne River that he first came to hear of the Noman Society. He was walking about Chamont one night with his hands in his pockets when he was approached by a, a dark bow-legged man who offered to trade a small book for two packages of old gold cigarettes. The book had to do with the interpretation of dreams. Corporal Jimerson did not smoke, nor did he have much interest in such a book, but he felt sorry for the ragged fellow, and so treated him to a good supper at the Hotel Davos. The man wept, overcome with gratitude. He said his name was Nick, and that he was an Albanian refugee from Turkey. After supper, he revealed that his real name was Mike, and that he was actually a Greek from Alexandria in Egypt. The dream book was worthless, he said, full of extravagant lies, and he apologized for imposing in such a way on the young soldier. He apologized, too, for his body odor, saying that nerve sweat or fear sweat made for a stronger stink than mere work sweat or heat sweat, or at least that had been his experience, and he was always nervous when he spoke of delicate matters. Perhaps he could repay the kindness in another way. He had another book. This one, the Codex Pappus, contained the secret wisdom of Atlantis. He could not let the book out of his hands, but as an adept in the Noman society, he was permitted to show it to outsiders, or perfect strangers who gave some promise of becoming gnomons. 
Lamar, who was himself an entered apprentice in the Blue Lodge of the Freemasons, expressed keen interest. It was a little gray book or booklet, hand-lettered in Greek. There were several pages given over to curious diagrams and geometric figures, mostly cones and triangles. Mike explained that this was not, of course, the original script. The original book had been sealed in an ivory casket in Atlantis many thousands of years ago and committed to the waves on that terrible day when the rumbling began. After floating about for 900 years, the casket had finally fetched up on a beach in Egypt, where it was found by Hermes Trismegistus. Another nine years passed before Hermes, with his great powers, was able to read the book, and then another nine before he was able to fully understand it and thus become the first modern master of the Noman society. Since those days, the Secret Brotherhood had seen many great masters, including Pythagoras and Cornelius Agrippa and Cagliostro, but none greater than the current one, Pletho Pappus, whose translation this little book was. Pletho lived and taught in the Noman temple in the island of Malta, with his two adepts, Robert and a man named Rosenberg. Lamar was embarrassed to say that he had not heard of the society, nor was he aware that flotsam of any description, literary or otherwise, had ever been recovered from Atlantis. What was the book about? Mike apologized again, saying he was bone-tired. Could they continue their discussion another time? He could hardly keep his eyes open and must now find himself a dark doorway where he might curl up and try to get a little rest. But Lamar would not hear this, and he arranged for Mike to be put up in the hotel. Their friendship flourished. They had many meals together and many long talks. Lamar paid for Mike's food and shelter and cigarettes and even bought him a cheap suit of clothes. Bit by bit, the truth came out. Mike confessed that his real name was Jack and that he was an Armenian from Damascus. He was here on a mission. Pletho, with an eye to expanding the activities of the secret order of the New World, had sent him here to Chaumont, disguised as a beggar, to look over the Americans and determine if any were worthy of the great work. So far, he had only found one. Lamar was embarrassed again, but Jack insisted that yes, Lamar was indeed worthy and must now prepare himself for acceptance into the Brotherhood. Lamar did so. First came the night of the figs, then the dark night of utter silence. On the third night, a wintry night, in room eight of the hotel, Lamar Jimerson folded his arms across his chest and spoke to Jack the ancient words from Atlantis. Tell me, my friend, how is bread made? And with much trembling became an initiate in the Noman society. This work done, Jack said that he was at last free to divulge his true Noman identity. He was Robert, a French gypsy, and he must now hasten back to, he must now hasten back to Malta to report his, his success to the master, the success of the American mission. He would leave the Codex Pappus in Lamar's care for further study, and as a kind token of good faith or surety, and he would return in a month or so with more secret books, with Lamar's ceremonial robe, and with sealed instructions from Pletho himself. There was a $200 charge for the robe, payable in advance. This was merely a bookkeeping technicality, one of Rosenberg's foolish quirks, and all rather pointless, seeing that Lamar would begin drawing $1,000 a month expense money as soon as his name was formally entered on the rolls. Still, Robert said, he had always found it better to humor Rosenberg in these matters. Lamar saw no more of Robert and heard nothing from Malta. He wrote letters to the Noman Temple in Valletta but got no answers. He wondered if Robert's ship might have been torpedoed or lost in a storm. There was no question of his having run off with the robe money, because he, Lamar, still had the codex, along with Robert's poma, a goatskin cap he had left behind in his room. This poma was a conical cap, signifying high office, or so Robert had told him. So he's, oh, yeah. jo- he's joining like a sort of like uh, cult, kind of. Yeah, a fake society that has no foundation that's uh, interesting i mean so, how many names did that guy have first he was mike then he was four or J- five yeah jack <laughs> then he was robert or something like that he's just a grifter yeah but so from here like the story just becomes about this guy just you know he's hooked <laughs> right he like um he's he immediately digs into this like uh pamphlet or whatever and he just starts building trying to build like a following for this group with just the thinnest possible foundation <laughs> like he um he travels to malta in search of this guy pletho pappas but instead he just meets some random guy named sydney who gets really interested in the tome as well and then it's just incredibly funny from there like it just becomes these two guys like pushing each other into building like momentum for this really baseless thing. Like, (laughs) like kids making up rules to a game as they go. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like Let me ask you this. <laughs> when Does most of the action happen in Malta or just a small part of no, it? No, no. Um, they end up forming like two different sects of it because they like kind of compete with each other. Hmm. Like, you know, it, there's like a turning point where they're like very early on where they're just they're like studying the thing. And it's just all these like fucking triangles and shit that makes no sense at all and they're mm-hmm. just trying to make sense of it and like they reach a dead end on trying to like find the leader or trying to find some kind of hmm. any information and they and they just one of them is just like can't you see it you're already a master like <laughs> yeah. we're both masters can't you tell like so they just <laughs> to you end know, it. they just <laughs> yeah in they a weird are. way i almost think it sounds like the have you ever read a john lacar novel he wrote like Tinker, no. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. He wrote a lot of British spy novels. And like it kind of sounds like that in a way where, you know, he's dealing with like spies and governments and stuff. But really, at the end, it's just like two sides that have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> meeting a conclusive end. Exactly. An inconclusive yeah. end. <laughs> and that's so awesome. It's like, you know, it's like a bullshit grinder, but yeah. it's just fun. <laughs> so like. So these two guys, it's Lamar and Sydney. They separate to like set up their own like Noman like branches. Lamar goes to America, back to America, and Sydney is like in Europe. And like Sydney just keeps adding like arbitrary rules and like titles to his role and stuff. <laughs> like he's got all these letters after his name, and they're just redoing. They're just doing ridiculous things like wearing that conical hat because that's how they like interpreted a line of text. Mm-hmm. that just said like the cone of fate is like all powerful and they're just basically wearing like dunce caps like <laughs> um sounds like the beginning of a religion i mean i guess it already is a religion yeah. like what they're following it's, yeah it's kind of like that it's like a satirical take on it um do you know the history behind the dunce cap no like i mean they wouldn't totally dunce caps wouldn't fly in like 2019 or whatever but yeah, they were um, they were named after a Scottish philosopher, Jonathan Duns Scotus. Duns was his middle name. Um, Scotus. So there's some joke about the Supreme Court baked yeah, in there. Something there. But <laughs> he was, uh, I guess, he was boys with um, Thomas Aquinas. He was like a very famous philosopher of his time. Right. And um, but he recommended wearing conical hats to like stimulate the brain. <laughs> and how like did we flip caps. that around into being like where the dunce cap i think uh i think like the government had like turned on him and even though he was like a smart he was like a influential thinker they just like made him out to be a, a dumbass like in the public or whatever um and i think that's where the wizard cap came comes from like that's why they wear like the conical the- hat it's like they're like thinking caps or whatever hmm um, so anyways, yeah. So there, be, there becomes a point where there's just like the two branches of nomanism that are like competing with each other and trying to like delegitimize the other, even though they don't have like a big following in the first place. It's just, it's really, really funny. Um, like there's one part where Lamar is trying to find people to recruit, like in like, he's like in Indiana or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and let me just read this quick paragraph. Once again, he set about in earnest to find recruits to the neglect of his clothing sales. He told his buyers that he had something in his sample case more beautiful than painted silk neckties and more lasting than Harris tweed. And the best part was that this thing would cost them nothing more than a little hard study at night. Um, He got his hands on a mailing list titled Odd Birds of Illinois and Indiana which by no means exhaustive contained the names of some 700 men who ordered strange merchandise through the mail, went to court often, wrote letters to the editor, wore unusual headgear, kept rooms that were filled with rocks or old newspapers. In short, independent thinkers who might be more receptive to the Atlantean lore than the general run of men. Lamar was a little surprised to find his own name on the list. It was given as Mr. Jimerson. His gossiping neighbors in Skokie, it seemed, had put him down for an odd bird. They had observed him going into his garage late at night in a pointed cap and had speculated that he was building a small flying machine behind those locked doors or pottering around with a toy railroad or a giant ball of twine. So it's kind of got some like flat, flat earther. Yeah. If you want to take like a modern (laughs) spin on it, but 
it's got some flat earther vibe to this story where they're just like uh targeting you know targeting i could be convinced of anything yeah yeah (laughs) um so i mean it just goes on like that where the guy like packs a lot of jokes into uh small space but um the this book creates just an incredible amount of loose ends and that's really just sort of the point you have to accept everything thrown at you uh just like the followers and even the leaders of nomanism do and it absolutely does not go anywhere in terms of like a well developed story but where it does go uh i thought was pretty great and um no there's almost no point to anything because the characters are all just doing dumb shit based off this pamphlet that didn't mean anything Mm -hmm. Dog of the and, South is a little bit like that too. Yeah. Where it's sort of just think, like it's not really leading anywhere. It's just a bunch of people doing weird stuff. Yeah, it's about the characters and um they have some cool depth to them and they're like, you know, unique. Um like uh the main character in, in Atlantis, he like tries trading like ancient Atlantean secrets to the US military during World War Two. <laughs> where he's like he's like <laughs> he's like this uh we div- like um i've interpreted this line that says you know we can use compressed air as like a weapon <laughs> like and they just like don't they just dis- dismiss him completely or like he tries to he tries to run for governor of indiana or illinois like based off of his support of like 50 people who are just oddballs <laughs> um but yeah, the situation, like the situations in the book are really funny. Uh, the comedic styles, like really stick and move, just, you know, laugh and move on to the next thing before it gets stale without, without like trying to over explain. Uh, so I definitely recommend Charles Portis and his books. Like the general consensus seems to be to start with True Grit, uh, which is, like I said, the exact opposite of what I did. Mm-hmm. That's the only one of his I haven't read. Um, so that would be really cool if I saved the best for last. Uh, so keep an eye on it. I might cover True Grit later on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds great. I mean, it's like, it's got, I mean, I don't, re- I remember reading Dog of the South and in conclusion, not loving it like 100%. But I think that the themes of this book kind of sound more up my alley. So I'd, I'd be willing to give it a shot. Nice. <laughs> so that's uh so that's masters of atlantis charles portis 1985 nice. and uh yeah to everyone out there trevor and i decided we had a lot of fun with the one star review game so we think we're gonna just cap off each shitty book report with a bad review of the book that we just covered right so tell so me I've a one a star couple... review of masters of atlantis <laughs> i got a couple one star reviews here shane says Without a doubt, the worst book I have ever read in all my years. A complete waste of my time. Nice. Um, John John says, this book goes nowhere and dies trying. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, uh, Nate says, 50 pages in, I gave up. I just didn't care and wasn't interested. I loved True Grit and Norwood, but I haven't liked the other books of his that I've read. Sorry, Charles. I am done with you. Done. <laughs> um. That's pretty good. That's very cold. And nice. The guy's still alive. Like, right? Yeah. Like, well, I'm sure he's not logging he could, into Amazon reviews. He could see that. I'm sure he's. Uh, I'm sure he's. Fine. How old is he now? You said he's like in his 80s. 85. Or, yeah. 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 Awesome. That was cool. Um, some of the themes of Mark's book may tie into mine, but uh, it's it's qu- quite a leap. Um, speaking of like religion and kind of like the false nature of you know being dedicated to it but also like does it work in practical society and stuff like that um i'm really excited about my book this week it's been a book that this is one of those books and mark i know that you can relate where it's like i started reading it and i was amped from day one to do it on the podcast and but (laughs) then it's also like a long and serious piece of literature that i did like I think I did probably like four or five books on the podcast while I was reading this. So it was like burning time, you know, I was like, I can't wait until I'm done because every time that you are reading a book and taking ones from your back catalog, it feels like you're running out of books to do, which is definitely (laughs) not going to happen because there's so many to go over, but it just feels that way, you know? Yeah. So today is is like a background. 
Really yes. Yeah. So today is finally the conclusion of when I can bring my first novel by Theodore Dostoevsky to the table. Ooh. And this is 1869's novel, The Idiot, um, by Dostoevsky. Um, this book has been sitting on my bookshelf for many, many years. Um, I have... My first introduction to Dostoevsky was pretty much everyone's first introduction, which was Crime and Punishment. I wasn't required to read it in high school, but um, one of our high school history teachers gave me a copy of it. Um, and I read Crime and Punishment, and you know, since then it's been basically just, I'm gonna read Dostoevsky for the rest of my life. So I had the idiot on deck. It's come with me through many moves and stuff like that, and I always just had it waiting for me, so I finally read it. I've read the first five pages. <laughs> oh, okay, good. Then, then you totally those, get it. One of those times where you like are searching for the right book and it just wasn't the right one at the time. I remember yeah. it starts out on, he's on a train, right? Yes. First five pages, he's on a train. First five pages, he's on a train. That's all I know. And I love, for the next uh, 700, no. <laughs> yeah, I love uh, Brothers Karamazov, though, or whoever, however you pronounce that. Yeah, I'm sure one day one of us will do Brothers K. Um, that's that's a, as, as epic as my research was for The Idiot, which I've gone, there's a lot of stuff that I need to get through. Uh, the Brothers K would be a really huge one. Yeah. Um, so I'll just dive right into Dostoevsky. I don't want to be go too much into his life just because he's just one of those people who since he's such a famous writer, one of the most famous writers in human history, there's like, you know, I actually might seriously do a, do a shitty book report on one of his biographies or something like that. But, um, just to really briefly kind of boil it down, Dostoevsky, Russian writer. If you haven't heard of him before, get up from under the rock that you're living under and go read him. Uh, he was born in 1821. He died in 1881, so he died age 59. He wrote 11 novels, three novellas, and 17 short stories with like countless stuff in between. So he was a pretty prolific old school writer. He, he just missed out on his pension. Just <laughs> terrible. Hate to see it. Hate to see it happen. Um, in his like... His life started, you know, like his mom died when he was 15. Um, I don't really know too much about his childhood, but one of the most important biographical things that has to do with a lot of his writing and some of the quotes that I'm going to be reading from The Idiot, I'm going to kind of fast forward ahead in time because, like I said, I can't cover all of Dostoevsky's life, but there was a brief period where he was like an engineer and he kind of had like, like he went up through the ranks of just, you know, his family wasn't necessarily poor but they weren't necessarily rich either and he became an engineer and like had a good life you know for a little while um a quote that i found really interesting relating to you know maybe some of the better times that dostoevsky had in his life that's directly from the idiot um is he this quote from luxury and comfort about luxury and comfort he says knowing how easily habits of luxury are acquired and how difficult they are to give up afterwards luxury gradually passes into necessity uh and i think that that fits with uh this novel as well um this is kind of a departure like from what i know of a lot of dostoevsky like crime and punishment or the brothers k notes from underground which is another good novella that he wrote it, they they do usually concern people of sort of like a lower class in society in society probably more like economically like his first novel was named poor folk and stuff like that so he's usually writing characters that are um you know on the down and out basically and not that that's not in the idiot but when i my my first impression on reading like getting into like a good chunk of the novel was like this is one of the only Dostoevsky stories I'm familiar with where almost everyone in the story is of kind of like a bourgeois class. Like everyone in it is either like living on inherited money or in villas or in mansions and stuff like that. And not that there isn't glimpses of poverty, but um, in a way this felt like, you know, closer to Downton Abbey than Dostoevsky has ever been, um, which which was like a sort of interesting thing and, that, and that's something to keep in mind going back to his biography a little bit so he lived as an engineer he had that good life you know luxury turns into necessity and in 1849 he's famously arrested for um 
being in part of literary circles that were like passing around banned books that were against the concept of czarist Russia. So basically he was like a political dissident in his like literary life. Um, even when he was an engineer during that like good period, he was publishing books. He published his first book called Poor Folk during that time. And then eventually he's sentenced to death and he spends four years in a prison camp in Siberia and another six years in mandatory service in the military in exile. So this is a turn of events in his life. Um, he basically, and something that one of the last biographical things I'll mention about him before I'm getting into the book is uh, Dostoyevsky literally was sentenced to death and faced a firing squad and was it was called off like at the last second. So that's something that's like very sort of cinematic. And, you know, that seems like it would only be in a movie, right? Where it's like, yeah, you know, he he literally was in front of a firing squad and they were like, wait, his sentence has been commuted. And it's like, holy shit. <laughs> um, so please keep that in mind as I go forward, too, because there's a few quotes um, in the novel that. I think really bring that moment forward. Um, and, I, and again, I was talking about, uh, and I'll get back into this later on in my outline, but you, Mark, your book was kind of about maybe the development of religion or some of like the false feelings behind joining like a massive kind of like religion or structure or societal mm -hmm. structure and stuff like that. And the idiot, um, even though when I was reading it, I think I have trouble. I think I have like blinders on with religious themes because it's so not a part of my world that like when I was reading this book, I was like, oh, it's like it's about human psychology. It's about, you know, um, this like bourgeois class and like how they all treat each other like shit. And there's a lot of like soap opera type drama. And then the more I read about the book after the fact that it was over, um, all of the critical analysis, including the introduction in my edition, which is Bantam Classics, um, and there's an introduction by a woman named Anne Hruska. Um, all of the other criticism of the novel kind of started bringing out the religious themes, which were kind of flying like right over my head as I was reading the whole thing. Um, <laughs> so, you know, Dostoevsky was a deeply religious person, deeply interested in human psychology. Um, the plot of the novel, um, you know, this is old world writing. This was published in 1869. So there is like sort of an element of to get through it, you have to enjoy the act of reading. I think just bar none, like sometimes you're just going to go through, you know, 20, 30, maybe even 50 pages. Like I think the first 200 pages of the book are all like one day where they're like in a room, you know, or something like that. Uh, so, yeah. You, you you do have to enjoy the act of reading to get through it, but the actual plot of the novel is that there is this person who Dostoevsky says, and it says this on the back of my book, his intention, what, my intention is to portray a truly beautiful soul. And um, the title, The Idiot, is about the main character whose name is Prince Lyov Nik Nikolaevich Mishkin. So, and more commonly known in the novel just as Mishkin. And Mishkin is the supposed idiot of the novel um, who is traveling back from, uh, he just spent many years, like basically from his adolescence into early adulthood. He's 27 at the time of the novel. And he spent the last several years in like a clinic with a doctor in Switzerland because he has epilepsy. Um, and epilepsy is sort of like a loose term in this book. I think that the translation of it might be, you know, not exactly the same thing because he doesn't have epileptic fits in the sense of like light and shadow or like anything like flashing in his eyes. I base yeah. and, and, you know, based on my impressions of the book, epilepsy in this novel can be another term for anxiety, like extreme anxiety or depression. Because basically he has, throughout the novel, a few um, large-scale, what they call epileptic fits, but what I recognize Dostoevsky writing about as, like, anxiety attacks. Um, they don't really come on, you know, in the same way that, that we now know epilepsy is. And I think that the term epilepsy was kind of a muddled term back when he, he was writing this. People weren't as acknowledging of mental health. 
Um, but Dostoevsky certainly is. Uh, he writes a lot about mental health in this book. A lot of the characters show attributes of um, depression and anxiety. And you can see that, like, as I'm talking about this book, it's hard for me to even get into the plot of it because it's n largely, like, not really about that. What's actually happening is that Mishkin, the quote-unquote idiot, which is also sort of a slight mistranslation, um, my fiancé is Russian, and she's basically informing me that the word idiot in in uh, English is the right translation, but it kind of means more like special person than it means stupid person. Um, so Mishkin is see, Mishkin is sort of like a like a person who is unlike anyone else, and you can see that as a theme in the novel. But basically, the actual plot is there's this guy who returns from Switzerland. He inherits a bunch of money, so he finds himself kind of in this upper class of society and he finds himself like in a love triangle with different like members of this like bourgeois class and like they're in St. Petersburg but then they also spend a lot of time they like summer in villas in the countryside and there's like a woman that he loves and then another woman that he loves and she loves him and he loves blah, blah 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 so there is like a bit of like a soap opera element here but really it's all about the like psychological interactions in between everything um, that's nothing what I thought it was going to be from the title and the first five pages. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty nuts book. It's pretty insane. Um, so I want to do a, a quick thing that I want to say about Russian literature because I have um, I've reported on a few uh, Russian novels and I talked about this a little bit when I was talking about Master and Margarita. Um, but I've seemed to have broken through the barrier. Mark, you know this from reading, um, you know, I know you've read Dostoevsky, but also, um, who's the guy who wrote hundred years of solitude? Uh, Marquez. Marquez. Um, you know, Latin names and Russian names, sometimes they're hard to get through. I don't know why I broke more through with Russian names than I did with Latin names, but everyone in this book has three names, three like humongous <laughs> Russian names. And yeah. Dostoevsky doesn't make any qualm because it's his native language. He doesn't really make any qualms with um, identifying each character, probably simply through either one or two of their three names. So when you're reading the book, it's not a hundred percent easy to keep the characters straight. I mean, it is. It, it it does eventually. I would say. I would say maybe like a hundred pages in, it starts to really make sense. Where it's like, okay, they come from this family, so it has to be one of these three or four people. And then eventually, by the end of the novel, I really did know every character. Like there was no question, like who was doing what and everything. Um, yeah. But my addition, which I think is definitely a good idea if your addition doesn't have it, is to either print out or have, you know, write something down. My addition actually has like a character list at the beginning of the book. And um, just to give you an idea of kind of what you're dealing with, um, I mentioned before that my fiance, uh, Daria, I love you, is natively uh, Russian. So to give everyone kind of like a slight idea of kind of what you're dealing with when you're going through all these characters, uh, I'm gonna play a little audio clip and this is just the names of all the characters strung out by a native Russian speaker. So stand by. Князь Лев Николаевич Мышкин, Настасья Филипповна Барашкова, Дарья Алексеевна, Иван Федорович Япончин, Алекс... Лизавета Прокофьевна Япончина, Александра Ивановна Япончина, Аделаида Ивановна Япончина, Аглая Ивановна Япончина, Евгений Павлович Радомский, принц Щ, Ардалион Александрович Иволгин, Нина Александровна Иволгина, Гавриил Адрилионович Иволгин, Варвара Адрилионовна Иволгина, Николай Адрилионович Иволгин, Иван Петрович Птицын, Парфен Семенович Рогожин, Иполит Терентьев, Антип Бурдовский, Владимир Докторенко, Фердыщенко, Келлер, Лукьян Тимофеевич Лебедев, Вера Лукьяновна Лебедева. Okay, so that what what Daria was just reading there was only characters' names. She didn't say anything else in Russian. It's only characters' names. And believe it or not, now like when I first heard her reading that, I was like, it does sort of sound like gibberish. Like, what did that sound to you, Mark? It sounded like a lot of different 
there's a series of different first names with the same really long last name. Yeah, so you're basically right on the money. There's the main character, Mishkin. There's also the woman that he's in love with, Nastasha Filipovna. Her friend, Daria Alexeyevna. Um, there is... She is the mistress of the guy who's not really in the book that much, uh, Afanasy Totsky. Then there's the whole Ipanchin family, which is probably what you were hearing about, like all these confusing yeah, names and yeah. then like Ipanchin. So there's a retired general, his wife, and his three daughters, eldest, middle, and youngest daughter, who uh, Mishkin is also in love with the youngest daughter. And there's also a guy named, you know, uh, Pavlovich Radomsky, who is, you know, her, she's, he's courting one of the daughters. And then there's also the guy who is married to the middle daughter and all this crazy stuff. So it is something, it's sort of like a minefield to get through, but I promise, like, even when I hear those names in Russian, I actually know everyone from the novel. It's a bit like Stephen King in that way. You know how we always say, like, by the end of a King novel, you know, like, 20 people, first name and last. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, names can be difficult. And, I mean, I have a hard time with I had a hard time with the names in 100 Years of Solitude just because it's. Yeah. And that was weird because it's, it's you know, different generations. Mm-hmm. They're, like, not existing at the same time, but they have very similar name. But, I mean. If people, the way I see it, if people can, I mean, if millions and millions of people can keep track of, like, all the Game of Thrones characters and stuff, right. then there's no excuse. <laughs> no, yeah, that that's exactly what it's like, where it's sort of like, yeah, I mean, I understand the perspective of being handed something like this, maybe, like, when you're a high school student and you just, like, don't want to concentrate on it. But literally the next step is, like I said, you know, if you enjoy the act of reading and you really can just take that next step of being like, I don't have to be as entertained as a Michael Bay movie, then there's like a real like there's a lot to get out of it. And there's like some crazy quotes that I'm going to bring up um, that I'm going to go into now, like throughout the novel. So now I've laid the groundwork for you. The Idiot is just like this amazing book. And and in a weird way, too, I think it's a different Dostoevsky novel because with a novel like Crime and Punishment, you know, have you read Crime and Punishment, Mark? Yeah, that was so, a early college read for me. Yeah, so that novel, that novel has sort of like a, a more modern sensibility, at least in my view, of being like, okay, like a murder happens and then this is what happens because of the murder and like everything is sort of there's like a focal point that it's leading towards and once i was like halfway through the idiot i realized that there wasn't this isn't like a typical dostoevsky novel where there's like a focal point or like a mystery or thriller it's kind of like okay this is gonna be a love triangle with some crazy shit it's gonna happen but it's mainly about like his kind of an analysis of what happens between people, which is totally up my alley because that's what Proust is all about. You know, like nothing happens in Proust. It's just about the people. Yeah. Um, and sometimes not even about the people, just about the objects. But um, <laughs> so now that I've laid all that groundwork for you, you know a little bit who Dostoevsky is. You know how crazy the characters are. And there's like this whole soap opera kind of feel to the book. Let me just rattle off some quotes from like a few different themes. First of all, I want to get into um, some pages that I've selected out of the book that have to do with execution. You know, I, I mentioned before about how uh, Dostoevsky faced a firing squad in Siberian prison camp. Yeah. So some things jumped out at me at the novel, out of the novel where I was like, holy shit, like this may be about, you know, Prince Mishkin, the idiot, you know, interacting with these high society types. But... Here's a scene where uh, the, the prince, which is actually kind of maybe more accurately, he's like a duke. Like he's not, you know, he's not the prince of a nation. He's sort of just like mm-hmm. a, a guy who inherited a bunch of money recently. So here's him describing to the Ipanchin family a painting that he thinks one of the daughters should make. So basically, like if you could paint anything in the world, Mishkin special person what would you paint okay so in this scene mishkin is describing to the pension family um the time that he saw somebody being executed and the painting that he would paint from that execution so i'll start it's practically the minute before death mishkin began with perfect readiness carried away by his memories and to all appearance instantly forgetting everything else That moment when he has just mounted the ladder and has just stepped onto the scaffold, then he glanced in my direction. I looked at his face and I understood it all. How can one describe it? 
I wish, I do wish that you or someone else would paint it. It would be best if it were you. I thought at the time that a picture of it would be good. I'm skipping ahead a little bit here, and I'm going to read a pretty large, uh, a few more quotes here. Uh, there were crowds of people. There was shouting, 10,000 faces, 10,000 eyes, all that he has had to bear, and worst of all, the thought, they are the 10,000, but not one of them is being executed. I am to be executed. It's strange that people rarely faint at these last moments. On the contrary, the brain is extraordinarily lively and must be working at a tremendous rate, at a tremendous rate like a machine at full speed. I fancy that there is a continual throbbing of ideas of all sorts, always unfinished and perhaps absurd too, quite irrelevant ideas. That man is looking at me. He has a wart on his forehead. One of the executioner's buttons is rusty, and yet all the while one knows and remembers everything. So paint the scaffold so that only the last step can be distinctly seen in the foreground and the criminal having just stepped on it, his head, his face, as white as paper, the priest holding up the cross, the man greedily putting forward his blue lips and looking and aware of, not, of everything, the cross and the head, that's the picture. The priest's face and the executioner's, his two attendants and a few heads and eyes below might be painted in the background in half light as the setting. That's the picture. So basically in a scene there, which really jumped out at me was that Mishkin is basically describing how a painting should be made of someone's last moments, um, which is really intense and something that Dostoevsky experienced himself. So that really jumped out at me. Um, another thing, like another theme that goes along with the book is, like I said, these epileptic and anxiety fits. And uh, there's one quote that I want to read from the book. Um, I've personally experienced this, so it was definitely really amazing to hear kind of like a really intense author um, describing it. So, um, you know, like I said, the idiot, if, if the idiot is about like nothing, then it's at least has all of these things that kind of jump out. And it's that old kind of thing that we talk about of since the author has definitely legitimately experienced it. Like I don't really know any other author author that I've read who has faced a firing squad. So when Dostoevsky is talking about executions, it feels very legitimate. Yeah. Face a firing squad and, you know, live to tell about. It. Yeah. So if, if he, wow. you know, and he's such an emotionally expressive person that if he has, you know, the power to write stuff about that, then, you know, it's, it's a rarity. So here's another um, section of the book where this is a time when Mishkin is alone by himself in St. Petersburg and it's leading up to him having uh, an epileptic fit or in my view, an anxiety attack. So he remembered, among other things, that he always had one minute just before the epileptic fit, if it came on while he was awake, when suddenly in the midst of sadness, spiritual darkness and oppression, there seemed at moments a flash of light in his brain, and with extraordinary impetus, all his vital forces suddenly began working at their highest tension. The sense of life, the, the consciousness of self, were multiplied ten times at these moments, was passed like a flash of lightning. His mind and his heart were flooded with extraordinary light. All his uneasiness, all his doubts, all his anxieties were relieved at once. They were all merged into a lofty calm, full of serene, harmonious joy and hope. But these moments, these flashes, were only the prelude of that final second. It was never more than a second with which the fit began. The second was, of course, unendurable. Thinking of that moment later, when he was all right again, he often said to himself that all these gleams and flashes of the highest sensation of life and self-consciousness, and therefore also of the highest form of existence, were nothing but disease, the interruption of the normal conditions. And if so, it was not at all the highest form of being, but on the contrary, must be reckoned the lowest. And yet he came at last to an extremely paradoxical conclusion. What if it is disease? He decided at last. What does it matter that it's an abnormal intensity if the result, if the minute minute of sensation remembered and analyzed afterwards in health turns out to be the acme of harmony and beauty and gives a feeling unknown and undivined till then of completeness of proportion of reconciliation and of ecstatic devotional merging in the highest synthesis of life these vague expressions seemed to him very comprehensible though too weak that it really was beauty and worship that it really was the highest synthesis of life he could not doubt and could not admit the possibility of doubt it was not as though he was abnormal and unreal visions of this of some sort at that moment as from his, as from hashish or opium or wine destroying the reason and distorting the soul he was quite capable of judging judging that when the attack was over these moments were only an extraordinary quickening of self-consciousness if the condition was to be expressed in one word and at the same time of the direct sensation of existence in the most intense degree so i think what dostoevsky is pulling apart there is 
And this kind of goes along with the execution theme, too, of he's kind of saying, like, these final moments, like, these lasting, like, kind of things that are seemingly only moments in time, he can, like, he has a very specific emotional memory for just picking them apart and, like, blasting them wide open. So it's, like, you know, the moments before Mishkin has a fit, to me, were the most interesting moments of the book because it's Dostoevsky kind of describing this... I think, you know, what I would say is he's describing in literary terms what the feeling of like that adrenaline rush, like your body kind of takes over and says there's something wrong. But as we now know with modern psychology, anxiety is like a is, you know, an improper response of fight or flight. So it's sort of like your body is just like in flight mode for no reason. And that's yeah, what that in- impending doom. Yeah. That's what, that's what um, Dostoevsky is projecting onto Mishkin, the character with his epileptic fits is sort of, you know, describing these moments, which are, which are really powerful in the book. Um, like the we last... always say that, that will never go out of style. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, and you bring up a good point, Mark, which like segues me into the next section is I was absolutely blown away by reading this book and from context clues, kind of finding things within the pages of this book that did feel like they were never going to go away, that did feel like um, that human beings are always going to be the same. And actually, I find it in the political realm. So switching from, you know, psychology and emotional kind of like adrenaline rushes or whatever the hell Dostoevsky has us talking about at this moment. He there's also like some discussion of politics in this book and I was blown away by you know, when you read a book that's this old from 1869, you would think that like uh the term conservative and the term liberal would have would have to have like different context because of their historical context right yeah but from the context clues of this book there are he's mainly dealing with people in upper society who tend to be a little bit more on the conservative side and they have like these diatribes about politics currently in russia that is really fascinating for the time because some of the stuff that they were saying i think were kind of vague criticisms of some liberalism like a lot of the people in the novel and Mishkin himself uh has a love for everybody and um his his Christian love for everybody is sort of at odds with the modern society of like how that works and actually that was the main theme of Anna Hruska's introduction to this novel basically saying um you know Dostoevsky created this character that is a Christian ideal but he can't exist within the bounds of modern society And um, there's a few quotes in here that I think are good jabs um, at sort of the state of politics, um, not only in Russia, but also in our current times. So here's some that kind of uh, this kind of reminds me of the Twitter crowd. Um, If you take a look at Twitter, you know, everyone's basically ready to be offended at the drop of a hat. So here's something that Dostoevsky wrote in 1869. (laughs) There are people who derive extraordinary enjoyment from their irritable sensitiveness, especially when it reaches a climax, as it very quickly does with them. At that moment, I believe they would positively prefer to have been insulted rather than not. These irritable people are always horribly fretted by remorse afterwards, if they have sense, of course, and are capable of realizing that they have been ten times as excited as they need to have been. Uh, So I think that that's like a really good sort of like succinct quote of, you know, in all political times, people sort of like lose their heads and it's like really crazy. Um, another one that jumped out yeah. at me that I definitely relate to this one is one of the characters is talking about Russian liberals at the time. And he says, quote, oh, you often meet among us liberals who are applauded by the rest and who are perhaps the most absurd, the most stupid and dangerous of conservatives, but they're unaware of it, unaware of it themselves. Um. And I think that that rings true today as well, where, you know, there are a lot of people who are running around, quote unquote, woke. And yeah. uh, but really, they're like the it's kind of like that thing of like, you know, uh, you know, woke feminism and stuff like that, where it's like you're probably one of the most pernicious, like anti-feminist people who kind of glob onto a movement and, want yeah. you know, yeah. have a voice, especially like. 
you know, just just everything. I just I found it so interesting that he had things like that to say at you know such such a long time ago. So those quotes went on me as well. Um, I'm running a little bit long, but just that's just because the idiot has so much to pick apart about it. Um, I would obviously really recommend it. Dostoevsky is just an absolutely incredible writer. He's at the top of many best books of all time lists because he's incredible. Um, one thing. I think a quote that before I get to my one star review of um, the idiot, which wasn't hard to find because like I talked about before the all like classic novels, their one star reviews are usually like this edition of the book sucks. You know, there's not that many people complaining about the actual <laughs> book. Yeah. Um, but just to conclude, um, you know, just to say Dostoevsky is, you know, such a great writer. And here's something that he wrote. That's a quote from the idiot about writing. I'll add, though, that there is something at the bottom of every new human thought, every thought of genius, or even every earnest thought that perhaps springs up in any brain, which can never be communicated to others, even if one were to write volumes about it or explaining one's ideas for 35 years, there's something left which cannot be induced to emerge from your brain and remains with you forever, and with it you will die, without communicating anyone perhaps the most important of your ideas. So, a little bit of kind of self-consciousness from Dostoevsky saying, you know, it's basically impossible, even though he is well known for being one of the best human communicators in, in literary form, there is sort of a, a base meaning within human nature that no one can put into words, which is a really cool thing to hear from someone like Dostoevsky. So, uh, you know, I'm sure he'll come back into the podcast because every time I read one of his books, it's a, it's a deeply uh, spiritual almost experience, I would say, if I, you know, I'm not religious, but he he makes me think about stuff like that. So kudos to Dostoevsky. And my one-star review for him uh, from Amazon.com, user <laughs> L. McDonald says, Too long. Besides the fact that it was too long with many irrelevant conversations and too many characters to keep track of, it is anti-Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> So sorry, L. McDonald, for uh, for Dostoevsky. There are a few rambling uh, quotes in there because he's Russian Orthodox. There are a few things uh, that are uh, Mishkin has a big kind of thing that's anti-Catholic. But that scene is also going over your head, L. McDonald, because it has to do with how you shouldn't talk about politics in certain settings. Because when Mishkin starts talking about politics at a dinner party. All hell breaks loose. So, um, you know, nothing right. again, nothing has changed in the political realm for the past how, however many hundred plus years. Yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Read the Idiot by Dostoevsky, um, a great novel. And um, yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> Wait, here's L. McDonald. <laughs> Ooh! thanks for listening everyone this has been shitty book reports you can find us every sunday on spotify soundcloud instagram and twitter we're also on Castbox now um at sbr the podcast and you can also email us sbr the podcast at gmail.com give us comments suggestions corrections and whatever you're feeling and we'll see you next time see ya <laughs>